Welcome to this week's episode of Sapere Day. I'm Dylan. And I'm Aaron. And today we have kind of a special episode. We have our first guest on. Episode 5, we got our first guest. What do you think, Dylan? Yeah, I'm excited. I know this is uh, this is something I really wanted to do, both with our guest today and then a number of other people that we've we've talked with. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So uh, hopefully this uh, kind of goes well, but we're both kind of new to this, but I have high hopes. So our guest today is Elaine Jones. She's an independent campaign consultant and political commentator. If you've heard of her, you probably know her as Libertarian Redhead on Facebook and Twitter. Um, she is formerly an executive committee member uh, in the Tennessee Libertarian Party and a contributor for the Liberty Herald. She's also an account manager at Victory Data, which I only am just now hearing about. I didn't know that. It's an, it's a, it's an SMS text bank geared for liberty-minded candidates. I did not know that such a thing existed prior to talking to Elaine. Yeah, me either. Um, I am. I don't think I'm on those texts those text lists but maybe we'll have to find out a way to get on there yeah yeah we'll have her plug it well without further delay here is our conversation with elaine joan hello everybody and we're here with elaine joan uh, Elaine, we want to start off with a simple question. Aaron and I have told our listeners kind of where where we've come from, our political background, and so um, how how did you get to where you are today? Do you call yourself a libertarian? Kind of what's what's your journey been along there? Sure, um, I became a libertarian without knowing what it was called when I was a teenager. So I was basic. I had basic libertarian principles by the time I left high school. And I just kind of formed those on my own, which is why it was very not defined. And I didn't know what it was called. I just thought that I was politically homeless. And yeah. it all kind of started around, hmm, let's see, I graduated in 2006. So it was like 2003, 2004. I was starting to figure out, you know, and listen to the debate surrounding gay marriage. That was a really big thing then. And to me, logically, it did not make sense that the government was going to mandate who you could or could not marry or who you could or could not have children with or anything like that. And that was sort of my beginning of rejecting both major parties because I knew I already knew that I didn't agree with Democrats on a lot of things. But then I knew that I didn't agree with Republicans on you know controlling anybody's life. So I left high school kind of politically homeless, but already sort of having the beginnings of that libertarian thought. And when I was in college, I discovered Ron Paul. And then I discovered that there was actually a name for this list of kind of loose principles that I had started yeah. to develop. And that just kind of got me off and running. And I was a little L libertarian from about 2009 until 2016. And then I joined the Libertarian Party in 2017 and i've been with the libertarian party ever since so i've never really been anything other than a libertarian as an adult yeah so in 2016 who'd you vote for if we um, can I ask didn't, i actually didn't vote in 2016 and it was just because i had moved and i hadn't registered in time with my new address to vote in my new district so when i went to start figuring out oh well i know i want to vote so how do i do this you know where do i go and then i was like oh crap I missed the cutoff. Like there was a cutoff date to, to file new information and I missed it. So I didn't actually vote in 2016, but I was definitely intending on voting for Gary in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, I have a Gary Johnson shirt actually. That's how I, how committed I was. That's yeah. kind of, that's kind of when I first started getting into it was Gary Johnson's campaign, <laughs> which uh, mm-hmm. he was, I mean, he's not the most principled and definitely not Bill Weld, but I was just like, I'm in it. He's got the same last name as me, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite pictures, I would say perhaps one of Aaron's most infamous pictures, is with uh, is with the Tiger King himself. Um, he's standing there. <laughs> he's standing there. Yeah, he's standing there with a Gary Johnson shirt next to. Wow! Oh, wow! 
What's I'm forgetting his name now. Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. Yeah. He's standing next to Joe Exotic. And I don't know if Aaron was high, but he looked high as hell in that picture. (laughs) I don't remember. Later, right? Yeah, yeah. Somewhat. We'll yeah. see how it goes. We're, we're casual. It's pretty casual here. But yeah, t- yeah, I do edit it. Um yeah, no, that was it's quite a funny picture, but uh yeah, that's kind of when I I mean I, I had met Aaron before that, but that's when I knew I wanted to be friends with him because him and I went to a pretty like small conservative Christian liberal arts college. And um, there weren't, as you could imagine, a lot of libertarians on that campus. So uh, when I, when I found another one, I was like, Oh my God, we got to be friends. Yeah. Uh, they were probably some tea partiers though. Right. I'm sure. There I were. Do. <laughs> I'm I sure there were. There. But... That's why I'm asking. I, oh, um, yeah. I started a county, I started a county level tea party when it initially was becoming a thing when Ron Paul was still pushing. It was very much his baby. You know, he wanted to see this big change and influx happen at the congressional level. So I've got involved and I started a tea party chapter in uh, South Southeast of Indianapolis when I was living in the area. And within probably three months, it had been completely overtaken with the Christian right. And I was like, this is not really the tea party that I thought that I was joining. So I'm going to leave. Even though I was one of the organizers, I was just like, this turned into something that I did not expect. And so I just walked away from it. Um, Of course you couldn't start. I mean, I guess I could have started another tea party that was more libertarian and like really forced the issue, but that just seemed like a lot of work. And I was like 21. So I was definitely not um, invested in (laughs) having any like turf wars with the tea partiers. So that was so that, like the end of my involvement with the Tea Party movement. That brings up that brings up a question I want to ask. What are <laughs> your thoughts on um, the well, at first in general, the coronavirus and the coronavirus stimulus bill, but then also the fact that a once um, quote unquote far right uh, Tea Partier Rand Paul voted to pass the stimulus bill. So I think in the in a coronavirus situation, we have a nationwide, you know, quote unquote pandemic, whether or not it's been encouraged by the media or the government or whatever, like if it's, um, we've obviously lost some civil liberties along the way, which is very scary. And everybody should be um, very wary of that and very hyper vigilant as far as that goes. But when you have a situation like this, the government kind of as a whole has already decided that they need to spend money during this pandemic. And so they're going to spend money. And so there are going to be lots of spending bills introduced on the House floor. And with a kind of semi-majority, not a super majority, but like a, um, a majority support for that, because all of the constituencies need help. And so they're pressuring their congressmen to do something for them. And so when you have a government that's already decided we're going to spend money during a pandemic, then it becomes a question for a congressman themselves to decide, okay, we're already going to spend money. So the best place to do it is to just give it back to my constituents directly, give it back to American families directly, rather than a huge corporate welfare bill, which is what we ended up getting. Um, And so I think a lot of them voted for it when they otherwise wouldn't have because they felt pressured because the government is going to spend the money anyway. So it's like, do you stand aside and let them just spend it on all these corporate welfare things and bail out the airlines and the cruise lines and all these big giant industries just to have them turn around and lay people off? Or do you lobby to have $1,200 stimulus checks included for American families because you know that it's better than nothing. Um, And I think that's where they were coming. I think that's how they were attacking the problem. And I don't, I can't really fault them for that. You know, they're trying to help people. And if you're talking about it in terms of taxes and from a libertarian's perspective, those taxes have already been taken. So you're giving them back to the people that it was stolen from to begin with. So I can't really, I can't really get too upset about that. Like you're giving money back to people that you took it from. You probably shouldn't have taken it in the first place, but that's sort of how the system works right now. So we really can't get around that. Um, right. So that's, that's, that's what I was I saying did. from the beginning. Like I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to take that money because it's it's my money anyway. Yeah, it's your uh, money anyway. But, 
And if you overpay next year, they're going to, you know, give you a bigger refund. Or if you've underpaid next year, then the stimulus is going to kind of be, um, I guess, credited back against what you owe or however that works. I mean, we've got some time to change how it works on the back end, you know, because it's not going to go into effect until the 2020 tax year is over and everybody's starting to file. So we have the rest of this year, um, this fiscal year to maybe mitigate how that's calculated on the back end. But as far as on the front end, the most important thing is to make sure that people can feed themselves and their families. And um, obviously nobody wants civil unrest. And that happens when people get desperate and they get hungry and they, they get, you know, threatened with being turned out of their homes. And that's terrifying, especially for somebody who's a parent, you know, and they have responsibilities to their children that that's a very scary position to be in. So I can't, I can't really slam somebody who's trying to help an American taxpayer by giving them some of their money back. I kind of see that as the most libertarian option that we had. Sure. But you can, you can, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. I didn't know that Rand Paul voted for that and he didn't, he didn't protest at all. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think it was like during when he was quarantined or something like that. So I don't know. I don't know how all that played out because he was sick and he had coronavirus. Oh, he tested right, positive yeah. and he went home. And so he was at home in Kentucky for two or three weeks, I think, until he was cleared to go back. He just, I think, went back to um, the Senate this week. So he w- So did they make it so that he could vote remotely? Is that how that worked? If he voted for the stimulus bill, then he would have had to vote remotely. Right. I... I- seem to recall him supporting it if he didn't vote for it i can i can look that up and fact check that but really what i'm thinking of at in any case there wasn't a single senator that voted against it i do think there were only 96 senators that actually voted for it so maybe uh Rand paul was one of the ones that didn't or- i know justin amash voted present he didn't vote for it but he didn't vote against it and he's He's right. always been very clear about his reasons when he does vote present instead of voting one way or the other. I think generally he felt the way that I just explained. If if the government's going to spend money, it should be to the taxpayers. We should just be giving them their tax money back. Um, but then I think he had huge disagreements with all the other pork that got stuffed into the bill. So instead of voting yes, he voted present as kind of a um, latent protest vote sort of thing. Right. And, and Thomas Massey rather than advocate for this huge, giant stimulus bill. Uh, He talked about how there should be a separate vote for every piece of legislation. So we're talking about pork, we're talking about Mm -hmm. bailouts and stuff like that. And he's always supported that. He's always supported um, bills being one-issue bills. You know, only put one thing in each bill, vote on that bill. And if you want to stick something else in there, you make a new bill. Um, And there's a lot of senators. I agree with that. There's a lot of senators and other... um, people that have pushed back against that. Um, and obviously it hasn't happened because they still do it the quote unquote old way, the way that it's always been done. Um, at least the way that it's been done as long as I've been alive is they right. just stuff as much things into the bill as they possibly can. And they might stick, they might stick something that's like veteran health related in a stimulus package, or they might stick something that's like an immigration reform into a, I don't know, a drug bill or, you know, it's just like they do random things like that. It's very and- irritating. <laughs> And there's no way they can read the whole thing. You know, they got their staff. There isn't, just, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and there, there isn't, no. And just, they, they Justin even said money. something about it recently. There was a bill. I don't think it was a stimulus package, but it was another one. And it might have been, it was a budget bill. It was, I think it was the, the two or $4 trillion budget bill. And he yeah. was like, it was over a hundred pages and they gave it to us and we had 25 minutes to read it. Right. It's not even possible. Like you just can't do it. Even with a full congressional staff all sitting in an office reading, okay, you take page one through 10. Okay. You take page 15 through 20 or whatever. You still can't get through the whole thing. You still can't reference other source materials to figure out, is this the best way? Are there other options? It, it's just impossible. So it's the system is designed in that way because if you, because if every congressman was able to read every single bill and they actually committed themselves to doing it, because there are some that just don't, um, they just vote the way that their party tells them to. But if every congressman committed to actually reading all of them and it was, and they had that issue every single time a bill came through, they just didn't have enough time to read it. uh, I think that they would throw a lot more fits about it than they do. Yeah. 
I think I don't know if it was the same thing that Justin Amash was was referencing because I remember seeing a tweet about that a little while back. But I think it was in one of the budget bills, one of the spending bills. That's when they uh, made it illegal to. Uh, that's when they raised the tobacco age to twenty one, mm-hmm. like tucked away in in like a spending bill. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was ridiculous. They that's do that a lot. It's insane. Yeah. And then uh, they find out about it later, and they're like. Well, I didn't actually support that. It's like well, right. you missed like two <laughs> sentences in the bill, and suddenly exactly. like you're complicit in like passing something that's terrible. So right. <laughs> it's exactly, just, it's not a good position to be in. It's so one of the one of the questions, you know, having to do with coronavirus, how would you say that this has affected you personally, and do you have? coronavirus or not you i assume you don't do you know anybody who does (laughs) i do not have coronavirus um i do i do have a friend overseas who did have it she was tested um and it came back positive for antibodies and the way that she had been feeling you know we had talked about it amongst friends she was feeling really awful for several weeks and she very strongly suspected that she had it she got tested um and they did confirm that she did have it and so she was quarantined in her flat in um, Germany for like three weeks and she's still kind of coming out of it, you know, and recovering, but she didn't ever go to the hospital or anything. She just convalesced at home. And I think that's what a lot of people are having to do, but she's the only person so far that I know that has had it. I had a couple other friends suspect that they had it, but then they were tested and were negative. So she's the only one. And as far as, as far as how it's changed my daily life, um, I have to do e-learning with my seven-year-old now. He's in first grade. So all of his school is now virtual, which has been good and bad. Um, as a parent, it's it's kind of neat because I'm learning how my child learns at a young age so I can help him better in the future should he should we make the decision that he do go back to public school. Um, and I really love the school district that he's in, so I don't really see any reason to kind of flip that upside down. And plus there's so many things right now that are just out of children's control in general. You know, they don't like, he's not going to get to see his teacher again for the rest of the year. And at that age, they get really attached to their teachers. You know, they really care about them and the teachers really care about them too. Um, Cause they see him all day, every day. And now he's not going to get to see her until August and he's not going to get to see any of his classmates. And that's hard. And um, they, they're doing a really good job, at least for him and his district. So that's probably the biggest thing that has changed that now we're basically doing um, homeschooling. So, but other than that, I work from home. So it's just been hard for me to kind of readjust my day. I kind of have to work in like two hour chunks throughout the day, like during nap time or put a movie on for him and sit next to him with my laptop or things like that. I can't just sit down at a desk and work for eight hours um, because he's right there. So those have been the biggest changes for me. So you said you've been a libertarian since about since when you left high school. What Mm -hmm. are some of the most important issues right now to you? Right now to me, um, I have really tried to prioritize in my own philosophy, just protecting constitutional amendments just as a whole, because that is the, the highest, um, legally binding document that supersedes everything else that constrains government. And that's the only thing that we really have right now that does that at that level. So to me, um, for a while I used the hashtag um, all amendments matter because a lot of people would selectively advocate for the the second amendment or the first amendment or the free speech part of the first amendment or the, Mm -hmm. the fifth amendment or whatever. I just kind of blanketly support all the amendments because they are the ones that constrain government, the federal government. And especially the ninth amendment, that one's really important. That one is the one that says anything that's not explicitly stated in the constitution, those rights belong to the people and not to government. And the government cannot um, supersede those rights or um, limit them in any way. So I think that's the most important amendment. That's the one that we have to really um, do our best to, protect and make sure that all of those stay intact. So that's kind of my, my baby issue. Um, but more than that, I am a huge proponent of criminal justice reform. I have a lot of friends that work in criminal justice in various capacities. 
I know public defenders and I know um, the national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. She, Hannah, she does amazing work. Um, so I have a lot of friends in that kind of industry or that, that area of um, policy. And so that's, that's a big one for me too. Yeah. I used to work at a criminal justice reform nonprofit and my father is a warden. So I kind of like growing up in a town in a County in Western Pennsylvania, that was pretty small and tightly knit. It was one of those things that, I mean, almost every time we ever went out when I was a kid, my father ran into a former resident is what he called them. uh, (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it was always, it was always just like the most kind and cordial thing, you know, like it was my father expressing a genuine interest in their well-being, how they're doing lately, keeping out of trouble, you know, that sort of thing. And, and That's that, great. that would be the end of it. You know, I never got, um, you know, I, he never put his hand on my shoulder and pulled me back or whispered like, you don't want to be like that guy. We, it, it was never anything like that. So when I had the opportunity to work at a, at a nonprofit that uh, uh, helped transition recently, uh, incarcerated individuals. It was a very rewarding experience and very humanizing. And so ever since, while I no longer work in that field, it's something that has always been very close to my heart. Well, I yeah, used to want to be... That you had that experience. Yeah. And that it wasn't the opposite, be, you know. Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. If you can... No, you're good. If I mean, if you can believe it, I used to want to be a cop going into going into uh, college. I wanted to be in criminal justice, so that's how far I've shifted. Now I can't even Fucking imagine. I'm, yeah, no, seriously. So um, I've dated some cops in my you know the last ten years or so, and you know never had any issues, never had anybody try to hit me or anything like that. You know, it's I realize like the statistics say what they say. But I, was, I, have I, had that. I have never had that. I have never had that. That's good. That is very good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I had a listener after last week's show tell me, uh, well, you know, there are some good cops, you know, and, and I, I agree with that. You know, I'm sure some of them, I'm sure, are good people. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as Donald Trump would say. Yeah, it's not, but, like, that's the thing. Like, I think that's kind of like the discrepancy. Like, I'm not saying that they're necessarily horrible people. I mean, that's there are people there. The same way that, like, we're all people. You know, there is personhood that we need to consider. It's the entire role of law enforcement mm-hmm. that I think we need to question, not cops. I mean, yeah, some people are scumbags. Exactly. Some people are just the way some cops are scumbags and some aren't the and question is scumbag so landlords and some awesome landlords like it's exactly. oh, yeah. to like every you know kind of industry you know there's there's tax there's there's cpas that cheat on your taxes and then there's ones that won't you know i worked for one that just like if a client said anything in a meeting she was like you really shouldn't have told me that because now i'm ethically bound to like put that in your taxes like we can't avoid that now oh no, <laughs> no. Good. oh man yeah, so it, it, I think that's yeah. applicable for all professions. Like, there are always yeah. some assholes, and then there are some people that are just, like, you couldn't ask for a better human being, like, in general. So, right. and people conflate, especially with law enforcement, they conflate the role of law enforcement with the individual. They want to make it the same thing, and it's it's not really the same thing. So, and it's very, and because law enforcement is very localized, that also plays a big part in it, too. You know, your local culture plays into the role of law enforcement just as much as law enforcement itself plays into that. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you a a random question. Okay. Because you were talking about the ninth amendment. That's, that's Mm -hmm. one of my favorites because that that's often one. That's one I, I run into a lot when falling back on conversations with, with liberals or conservatives, when, when there's a question about, should I be allowed to do this thing? And not even like, is this thing good or bad, which a lot of people equate those two questions, but just should I have the freedom to make this choice? Mm -hmm. And very oftentimes I'll be like, no. And I'll be like, okay, well, what about free speech? What about freedom of assembly? What about this or that? And they'll be like, well, no, and here's why. And then I'll go, you know, I'll lean on the Ninth Amendment for certain things. So one of the things I always lean on there is uh, when it comes to uh, pornography, 
uh-huh. and drug use. Um, so I, I, I think, without a doubt, pornography is covered by the First Amendment. So we don't even need to get that far down the list. But let's, you know, we make it to the Ninth Amendment. Should there be any kind of regulation as to what I can consume? Or should the government be in the role or should they even be a part of the conversation when it comes to decency and decency laws? Um, what, are, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? So um, I actually commented uh, a few days ago on a Twitter thread about uh, pornography. And I think it was Cassie Dillon or somebody like that. Um, and they, said, okay, the, uh, they were like, okay, it's time to rile up people. Pornography is bad. And like, that was the only tweet. That was all that she said. And my response to that was pornography is bad. Just like alcohol is bad. Some people don't like it and just don't drink. Some people love it and they do it frequently, but it doesn't really carry over into any other aspect of their lives. And then some people do it to complete excess and wreck their family, wreck their career, wreck, you know, their car, like hurt other people because they accidentally rewire their brain or they may have an addictive personality or some other thing that, you know, makes them keep going back to alcohol to solve a perceived problem and it doesn't work and they end up self-destructing. Porn is the exact same way. Um, Yes, it can be bad if you if you focus on it, if you hyper-focus on it, if you have an addictive personality and you get caught up in the, you know, the, the rush of the serotonin and dopamine and all of those other things that happen in your brain when you feel good. Um, but it's, it's just like any other vice, you know, that happens with cigarettes. It happens with heroin. It happens with lots of other things. So, and some of those other things like cigarettes and alcohol are perfectly legal if you're an adult. So to me, porn is the same way. Yeah, there. Do you uh, listen to Eric Weinstein's podcast, Weinstein? Don't. Mm -mm. Um, If there was one episode I'd recommend, it was actually his interview with Ashley Matthews, who Uh is the actress um, behind Riley Reed, one of the country's most uh, popular porn performers. And, Uh um, you know, obviously there was a significant. intellectual difference between the two not that riley is an idiot but more so eric weinstein's just so smart um anyone is an idiot when being compared to (laughs) him but uh it was very interesting their their conversation on free speech and decency laws and um you know obviously the both of them kept defaulting to like there shouldn't even not only should there not be any decency laws in the books government and politicians shouldn't even be a part of the conversation as to what society and what private individuals deem decent or not decent. Yeah. And that goes back to that whole, um, the libertarian pillar of the the NAP. Like if you are doing something and you're not hurting anyone else or the other person involved is an adult and they are consenting, then what need is there for a politician or a law at all? Like you're both consented. It's a voluntary arrangement and that's it. Like that's the end of the conversation. So I tend to agree with that. Um, I realized right after I stopped talking earlier that I didn't really answer your question. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I don't think politicians have any place yeah. in that conversation at all. If, if there's two adults and they're consenting, that's it. Yeah. And especially with porn, it doesn't really make sense that as long as you film it, it's legal. But if you're not filming yeah. it, then it's not legal. Like yeah. that, that does not make any sense to me. No, not at all. So yeah, I had a question. Um, kind of different but are you would you call yourself a feminist there are so i actually had to go look this up because i was like maybe but i know that there are so (laughs) many different schools of thought that are attributed to feminism that i was like if i answer this question i want to answer it the correct way so the best thing that i came up with is that i am what's called um, a gender reform feminist, which that's rooted in a political philosophy of classical liberalism that emphasizes individual rights. And that's about as specific as I can get right now. Um, so that's what I'm called. It's like the one of the three major umbrellas of feminism. And then there are lots of subcategories underneath that. So I think that that's very congruent with libertarianism. Do you have much familiarity with egalitarianism? Would you call yourself an egalitarianism? A little bit. Um, yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, for all people to be 
The, the, the thing that a lot of people don't understand is there different, there's a difference between being equitable and being equal. Like those things are separate and they get conflated a whole lot. So it just depends on who you're talking to. If they, if they understand those differences, then you can have a conversation with them about, you know, what is fair and what is equitable versus equality. So it kind of goes so, with that one. So in your mind, not to trip you up, so in your mind, what would you say is the difference, especially when it comes to politics and the way we, well, okay, I guess those could be separate. When it comes to politics and when it comes to the law, what would you say is the difference between equal and equitable? So equitable is being impartial. But being equal, especially when you consider in terms of gender, a lot of people think that equal genders means that everybody's that that females and males are capable of all of the same things. And biologically, that's not true. So I think that's where the difference is for me. Biologically, we're different. And so we have different strengths and weaknesses based on that. And that really can't be changed very much. Um, you can change it. We're going to get banned on Twitter now. <laughs> Cause you just said that <laughs> you just can't, I mean, you can, you can change it to a certain degree, especially when yeah. you consider that, you know, you have hormone therapies and all kinds of things like this. But when you talk about um, transgender women, just blasting female athletes out of competitions and things like that, and just beating their world records by, you know, nine and 10 seconds, like clearly that's not equitable because they're not equal. Yeah. So, Zuby comes to mind. And, yeah. What? Yeah. I don't know if you guys have heard of Zuby, but I'm pretty sure he got famous uh, calling himself oh, a woman yeah. for like 10 seconds to beat some record. I can't remember which record it was, but he's pretty <laughs> famous. Zuby Zuby music? Yeah, Zuby Music. That's him. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm not. Su- I follow him on Twitter, but I'm not super familiar with that kind of origin story. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, neither that. am I. I shouldn't have even brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that part out clip uh, so talking uh kind of staying with this are you are you familiar with either of the organizations ladies of liberty or feminists of liberty i'm not familiar with feminists of liberty but ladies of liberty yes um i belong to the ladies of liberty chapter in nashville and we had some brunches and you know good conversation there's actually a really healthy um female presence in the Tennessee Libertarian Party. And that's kind of where I got involved. Um, I think when I was on the XCOM, we had nine regionals and then the four officers. So there were 12 of us total. And I think of those 12 during the time that I served, we were like 50-50 men and women. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, So yeah, it was a really great, you know, culture and atmosphere to kind of enter into the Libertarian Party from, which is probably why I haven't gotten into it yet. Um, do you, do you follow, I don't know if you follow or read anything from Elizabeth Nolan Brown on, she writes for reason magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I've heard, heard of her. Um, I think she was at convention in 2018 maybe. Um, but she's great. Possibly. Yeah. She, um, she, so she's a senior editor with reason, but then she's also her, her bio on Twitter. These are her words. So I don't know what it means, but she refers to herself as the co-lead of feminist liberty, but then Kat Murdy is the actual executive director of feminists for liberty but when i when i used to follow them on my old twitter account mm-hmm. um i never interacted with the tweets but i would see a number of tweets that like every you know, not to say i don't have some disagreements but a lot of what they were saying i would you know agree with it or i'd see it's a lot of a of, of valid um point behind what they're saying mm-hmm. and then i would make the mistake of reading some of the responses and like responses that like when you land on this specific person's page they're like okay i would probably follow this person but then you just you see how they treat in this case specifically women mm-hmm. usually you know even fellow libertarian minded women and they're just totally toxic they're just complete scumbags have mm-hmm. have you faced any of that and and what would you say are some steps forward specifically to the libertarian I don't want to say the official libertarian party, but you know, like libertarians and ways that we can move past that toxicity. Yeah. Um, I have experienced it a little bit, but on a pretty minor scale, I think um, I've had some women be catty to me, but that's kind of women in general. Like whenever you get a large group of women together, like that inevitably happens, like a few get catty over 
one thing or another, you know, it might be a jealousy issue or it might be, um, something else, but there's, there's always a few that kind of ruin it for everybody else. But, um, the way that I experienced it, especially online on Twitter is that for some reason I get accused of being the generic version of another libertarian redhead and people will choose lots of other libertarian redheads that exist. And they're like, you're just the generic version of this one. And I'm like, how am I generic? If I've been a libertarian for like 16 years, like my entire adult life, like if anything, I'm the original and everybody else is a copy of me. Like I don't understand that. Like, and I don't really, I don't make that argument because I don't truly believe it, but it just seems like a kind of a pointless insult. You're the generic version of this. And I'm like, but I'm not because I've been this way for like, 16 years. <laughs> and I, it's, it's refreshing to see that you actually have red hair. I do, I do see a lot of uh, redhead libertarians on Twitter. And I, one of my questions was going to be is why are there so many, how are there so many? I, I mean, like those 50% of the people uh, of the, of the women in that uh, group you were in, did they, did any of them have red hair? Or like, how does that work? Yes. Actually, like we had a joke that it was like all of the libertarian redheads lived in Tennessee because oh one of the God. other off at least one of the other officers was a redhead. And I think one of the other girls was blonde, and we were like, she has the attitude of a redhead, so if she did a dye job, like we would accept her, it's fine. Um <laughs> but yeah, there's there are lots of redheads in Tennessee and like people people that I would meet um like at convention or something like that, and they would see our delegate table and they would see like a bunch of redheads and they would be like how did Tennessee end up with all the redheads? Like, oh this God. is very unfair. <laughs> like, why can't you spread the love? Like, yeah. there be more redheads in other states. Um, it's, that, it's that fiery, rebellious attitude. My my sibling, yeah. brother and a sister, they're they're both gingers. They're both redheads. I don't know. I didn't. I wound up with brown hair. So I didn't have both to, my parents have brown hair, but my brother and I both have red hair. Really? So, yeah. Um, it's so random. that double recessive gene. So you have to have it on both sides of your family for you to even have a chance of getting it. So I don't know if it's, I think it's kind of, I hate to say it's like this innate, you know, rejection of authority on all redheads, but right. yeah. kind of are, I mean, <laughs> we're just, <laughs> we're, we're mostly descendants of uh, Vikings or, Irish. And I believe that there wasn't any red hair in Ireland until the Vikings invaded. So we're, I guess, kind of descended from, from that, you know, kind of line. And I don't know if that's something that's like genetically passed on through the generations of just, we, we just reject authority, but yeah, there are a lot of libertarian redheads and not just women either. Um, I went to Yalcon last summer in, at the end of June in Memphis because it was the closest one to me. And there were several other libertarian guys. And I, I kind of, I walked up to them at one point cause they were all kind of standing together. And I was like, so is this the redhead club at this event? Cause there's always one like at every single event, like all of redheads tend to like gravitate to each other. Cause we have something, you know, outwardly in common. Right. That's so interesting. I never thought it was like, I mean, I, I didn't think it was like that to that extent, but that's, that's interesting for sure. I think it depends on the area that you're in, like the state that you're in, you know, yeah. obviously Tennessee is probably an exception. Um, but I think there's a couple of other states that are like that too, where they just, they have a lot of redheads. Right. So um, one of the, one of my last questions I wanted to bring up, um, I think I kind of mentioned this beforehand. Um, I'm curious within kind of the spectrum uh, the spectrum of libertarianism. Would you say you're more further on the left? Are you more on the right? Do you call yourself an ANCAP, libertarian socialist? <laughs> or, and, and regardless no. of what you call yourself, what do you see the pros and cons on both sides? Or do you see I your flavoring? Yeah, I can see pros and cons on both sides. Um, sorry, I'm touching my face a lot. Um, <laughs> that's a coronavirus no-no. But yeah, don't exactly. be like me. Don't touch your face. And then I do it again because now I'm like thinking about it. But anyways, <laughs> no, um, I I do see some merit in some of the ideas from the left and right schools of libertarian thought. Um, but ultimately, I will say every time I take a political compass test, like any of the really in-depth ones, mm-hmm. I tend to fall. I tend to fall more in the um, agorist area of the yeah. of the quadrant. So that's sort of where I consider to be my home. Um, but I think that there's a distinct difference between 
what I believe in my heart to be the best course forward for the, for the country and where I think that it should be ultimately versus how we can, how we can affect things electorally right now. Um, so I consider myself an anarchist at heart, but pragmatic as far as electoral politics go, because I think that is where we have the most success as a party and with our candidates and the, the agorist voluntarist, you know, school of thought is like further down that railroad track. We're just not there yet. And, you know, we just kind of have to wait for it and it might happen and it might not. It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It's probably not going to happen in my son's lifetime. Um, but that's okay with me as long as it gets, as long as we get a little bit further advanced, you know, every year, every election cycle, that's okay with me. That's enough for me. I don't, I'm not one of those people who wants to do it all at once because I know, I know what the effects of that would be. You know, we've had, we've had anarchist movements take over governments before it happened in Spain. We had the big Spanish anarchist war and then they took over government and like immediately instituted communism. And it was like, okay, so not very much anarchy there. Um, because ultimately the state ended up controlling a lot of things. And that's what happened when that's what happens when you try to do everything all at once is that it creates so much chaos that everybody gets super freaked out. And all they do is they're like, Oh God, okay, this didn't work. We need to centralize right now because if we don't like lots of people are going to die, there's just going to be more chaos and violence. And that's not good for anybody. So the best thing I think is to just do it a little bit at a time until you get to the point where the government is so small that it doesn't really matter that it exists or not. And then that's when you can have the conversation of time to abolish, time to not abolish. Right. So would yeah. you say you kind of, um, kind of the opposite would be the same. So those individuals as the democratic party wrestles with a very significant divide within its borders between the people further on the left, the socialists versus more moderate Democrats, such as mm-hmm. Biden, um, would you say the closer, if they wanted to pursue idea, their ideals, it would be the same way? It would kind of be through those smaller, more incremental steps to a full socialist utopia? That they have already been doing that. I mean, the Democratic Party figured out incrementalism and how to use it to their advantage over 20 yeah. years ago. And they yeah. just keep they just keep pushing that needle just a little tiny bit. Every election cycle and every... Um, legislative session and all of that to now where you get to the point where you have a guy like Bernie Sanders, who's democratic socialist who can run under their party banner for president, get huge amounts of support, huge amounts of donations and um, all kinds of stuff like this and be this kind of like left wing folk hero. Whereas if he had tried to do that in this, in the you know eighties or the nineties, it never would have worked because they weren't to that point where they were ready to accept that. Um, and we're, we have to look at our electoral politics the exact same way. Um, incrementalism. That's what you have to do. Just one step at a time, even if it means one step forward, two steps back, like eventually it all comes out in the wash and you end up hopefully where you want to be. Right. Yeah. I, I sure hope you're right. I mean, I, when I was, a when I was a Republican or when I considered myself a Republican, uh, if someone mentioned anarchy to me, I would just think that meant chaos, but I mean, mm-hmm. the only reason I'm, I'm, even sort of partial to it right now is because of the libertarian party. I mean, I wouldn't know about any of these principles if it weren't for them. So, I mean, I definitely see where you're coming from there. Um, but switching gears before we wrap up, I want to talk about uh, Justin Amash a little bit because you, uh, I, I saw that he placed a lifetime membership with the libertarian party and um, it's, so he's running for, for the presidential nomination, isn't he? I very strongly suspect that he is. And I predicted that about a year ago, give or take a month. Um, I was part of developing a grassroots group on Facebook to connect people that would support him. And it was people who were constitutional conservatives, people who considered themselves, you know, um, just regular old Republicans, even people that were kind of moderate Democrats that just were afraid that they would get stuck with a candidate they didn't like, you know, like Biden or um, Sanders, not Sanders, but um, Elizabeth Warren. They were very not excited about a Biden or Warren presidency. And they were like, well, if Bernie Sanders doesn't get it, then nobody else can beat Trump if it's not Sanders. So I'd be willing to consider supporting someone like Justin Amash just to give the middle finger to the DNC and to Trump. Um, 
and they can do that with a third party vote. And so they were open to that. So I just started creating this big kind of umbrella of, you know, I guess big tent um, libertarianism, but it wasn't that it wasn't so much that I required that they believe libertarianism. It was just like, are you willing to vote for this person or not? And we had a lot of success with that. It grew really quickly. And now it's kind of, we were quiet for a while. You know, we didn't really do a whole lot because he wasn't doing a whole lot. We were like, okay, there's not really any signs that this is actually going to happen. So we'll just kind of put it on the back burner. And now this week, the whole group is just like exploding again. So lots of membership requests, lots of interest, lots of questions. Um, I don't think it's the smartest move to do it this late. I really wished it would have happened back in November or December, you know, near the end of the year. Um, even January would have been okay. Um, but now it's an uphill battle. So, and coronavirus just makes it that much more difficult because the, yeah. the states that haven't had their um, conventions yet that he could have gone to, even if he had entered this late, now they're not having conventions at all. So it's like a double whammy. You know, you can't even go to a convention because they're not having it. You know, it's either going to be virtual or they're going to, I think Ohio did this not because of coronavirus, but they selected their delegates via email and their convention is actually scheduled for like late June. So it's their, their state convention scheduled for after national. Um, so he could go to an event like that, you know, where they're having a convention later, but most states have it before national because they have to select their delegates. And that's traditionally the way that we've always done it. Right. So. That's how the Oklahoma Libertarian Party did it. We did it over email. We had a, a Zoom call, mm-hmm. probably 40 people on there, and then we voted on on our delegate on our uh, on our preferred candidates and also delegates uh, over email. So, but I mean, mm-hmm. Justin Amash wasn't even in there. I I already had my top 3 figured out before Justin uh, kind of jumped into it. Uh, how do you feel about I it would now? definitely I mean, I would consider voting for him. If he was the, the person, I would definitely vote for him. But I would just, I'm just kind of wary because, yeah, he is jumping into it really late. Um, I really liked Jacob Hornberger before he was very principled. But I think Justin Amash has enough ra- name recognition. And I think he would be way better than Gary Johnson. Um, so, yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at so far. I mean, I would definitely vote for him. So, you, yeah. you, you got me there. Every candidate has pros and cons. Every candidate is better at some things than other things. Um, Gary was not good at fielding gotcha questions. That was just his weakness. And Justin's weakness. Yeah. Justin's weakness to me is that he, he hates, I feel like the mainstream media and he doesn't like the games that they try to play. So his solution to that is to just not go on mainstream media. And when you're running for president, that's obviously going to hurt you. So I feel like the best course of action for him, if he's going to continue to reject, you know, mainstream media overtures of doing interviews and things like that. Um, now as a presidential candidate, he might change that. He might want to do it more often, but um, he would probably need a running mate that was more willing to work with the mainstream media than he is if he just kind of wants to avoid that. So I don't know. We'll just see how, what happens. I think the best thing he could do is tap somebody who's been kind of an LP long time member, like a lifetime member, somebody who's been involved for forever to be his VP. Um, (laughs) I actually think Judge Gray would make a really great VP for him. Okay. I don't think I know who that is. He just entered the race last week. um, And I was told uh, that the story that Reason ran was actually run a week early. So technically, if you adjust your timeline to Judge Gray announcing this week, then Justin announcing the same week makes it more palatable to the LP. Um, so I don't know, maybe that was, maybe that was a goof, you know, like PR wise or something like that. But obviously judge Gray has already picked Larry Sharp to be his running mate. The, the problem with that is that we, we can't run s- slates of candidates at, at for the delegates, the delegates choose one and then they choose the other. They don't choose a, a team at the same time. So it could, um, they could, the delegation could decide to put judge gray with Amash. They, they might be like, we're willing to accept you at the top of the ticket, but only if you take judge gray with you or only if you take Jacob Hornberger with you or, you know, someone like that. And he would just have to, he would just have to deal with that. Um, cause that's how our conventions work. That's how our nominating process works. I just want to say for the record, I absolutely love Larry Sharp. 
Oh, everybody loves Larry. Larry's like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can think of anybody who doesn't like Larry. They might yeah. disagree with him, but they don't dislike him. Mm-hmm. And that is, he makes a wonderful running mate for Judge Gray because Judge Gray kind of brings that um, older statesman-like presence to the ticket. But Larry Sharp had definitely has caught all of the attention of all of like the under 40 crowd and even the over 40 crowd as well. Most of them like him too. Um, but he definitely has more reach and more pull with, I would say, millennial voters and the Gen X um, sector of the party. So um, I think that's a perfect ticket. That's great. That If Justin weren't in it, that would be the ticket that I would probably um, go for. Yeah, And there, we have a lot of other really good candidates too. Joe Jorgensen is very solid on policy. Um, Sam Robb is such a great guy. He's so nice. I didn't get to meet him because he didn't come to the convention that I went to, but I always enjoy interacting with him on Twitter. Ken Armstrong, he's a very strong candidate as well. John Mons is wonderful. Um, so I, and I don't really, I don't really have any big policy issues with Jacob Hornberger either. I just have been very frustrated with the way that he has been treating, um, a potential Justin Amash candidacy in the last few weeks, you know, making YouTube videos and things like that, slamming him and stuff like that. And to do that before he's announced that he's going to be a candidate to me, it just made it come off very petty and very, um, very much like a catty girl, you know, just like I'm going to attack you because I'm jealous or because I feel like you are usurping my territory or something like that. And that's, not a good look for anybody, male or female. Yeah, yeah I think like some he's nervous. Yeah, he's very yeah. threatened by by the prospect mm-hmm. of a Justin Amash candidacy. But we've learned, I, I, at least I hope people have learned, that when new people come into the party, if you treat them like crap for six or eight months during a presidential race or yeah. during for the first six or eight months that they're in the party, don't be surprised when they walk away. Like, why would you stay somewhere that people make you feel unwanted? Like from a mental health perspective, we always tell people if you're in that situation, get new friends. So it's like if you're in that political party and all they do is make you feel like crap about yourself, probably need to find a new one. And that's what he already did with the GOP. So they left him out in the cold and they're doing the same thing to Thomas Massey right now. Although I don't think Massey is as likely to jump ship as Justin was. Um, But yeah, it's like if you treat people badly, don't be surprised when they walk away from you and don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. It's just how it is. Yeah. You attract more flies with honey than vinegar. Yes, it's true. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us as our first guest on our podcast. This was fantastic. Thank you for yeah, having me. This was fun. Absolutely. We appreciate your time. Take care. Sure. Have a great night, guys. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Elaine. We certainly did. We appreciate her coming on. Some quick housekeeping before you go. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Pod, And you can reach us at Gmail with questions, comments, concerns. Pod at gmail.com. We will have an episode out for you guys next week. Until then, take care. The Peri Ade is a production from Gaudium, for fun, for future. Hosted by me, Aaron Johnson. And me, Dylan Shoup. See you again next time.